Well, our cold open historically has been funny stuff. Uh, today it's not. Flat out, uh, for a weekend that we were enjoying a lot of my travel antics and whatnot and trying to put on a bright, happy face about it all, uh, a lot of things uh, went wrong uh, throughout the weekend. Uh, it started on Friday when uh, we found out uh, you know, the hard way that Johns Hopkins game uh, hosting Muhlenberg was being delayed for some unknown reason. In fact, Dan Swanstrom over UPenn uh, had hit me up to say, hey, what's going on over there? Hey, we're seeing a lot of sirens and stuff on the web stream. And, uh, you know, asked Nate Milne and he uh, broke the news to me that a parent of a Muhlenberg player uh, had a medical emergency and they had delayed the game. So appreciate Johns Hopkins sort of taking that in stride with them uh, during it. Uh, we found out that the uh, parent passed away uh, later on and uh, we were trying to clarify with uh, Nate Milne if we could name names this point because we don't see an obituary uh, we cannot uh, you know get a hold of him at least for this airing uh, if uh, that changes we'll put something into this uh, you know the 24 hours between recording and release usually that happens here we'll put something in so you uh, are informed but uh, that was very sad to hear the next morning while I was driving back from New York City then on Sunday night we understood uh, from uh, some information we got that Lenny Reich the former sports information director of Mount Union, who had moved on to some uh, high school stuff while he's been facing uh, bone marrow cancer treatment, uh, was very sick with organ failure occurring on Sunday night and a lot of calls for prayers for him. On uh, Monday, uh, we learned that Lenny passed at the age of, I believe, 49. Um, something that is tough to swallow. Uh, it's tough to accept here for us because the age alone does a lot to just sort of slap you into the middle of next week uh, about just how mortal we really are. But to lose a friend, um, you know, somebody we've had some tussles with at times, there's no doubt. But um, we, uh, we loved and appreciated everything he did for us. Um, the last thing he really did for us after a little bit of a tussle I had with him in Alliance last year, uh, after the quarterfinal game, between Muhlenberg and Mount Union, and uh, we didn't get any post-game uh, stuff, and I was a little upset with them and everything. And I said, "Well, you better get us a you know a semifinal interview with somebody, Braxton Plunk, in that case." And he did; he delivered, and that was what he was about. He was about building bridges, trying to get us back together again after some of the back and forth over the last few years of D3 football with us, etc. Uh, and I, I won't ever forget the fact that. We didn't have a dark screen, essentially, uh, you know, where there was a Mount Union player on our little thumbnail for the show. Uh, we actually had a player from Mount Union for the first time, I believe, in our, uh, well, very few times in our history, put it that way. So uh, that's, that's Lenny in a nutshell. Uh, he was loyal to his school, but he also was loyal to his friends. And when the two mixed, he would do his best to make sure that everybody got what they needed, and he did that for us. JB, you heard the news yesterday. I know you kind of took a gut shot on this whole thing as well. I'll let you talk. Yeah, I mean, Lenny and I are basically the same age. I'm a few months away from, from turning 49, and the whole thing just happened so suddenly. You know, it was one of those things where he had retired from being an SID and seemed like was moving on with his life and a new career, kind of athletic director for a local high school or something to that effect, and then all of a sudden... He's in the hospital seeing pictures online, you know, some of the challenges that he was he was facing and 
you know, his wife and daughter and, and brother Joe and others were along, you know, his side the whole time. And then over the course of the weekend, he went into a rapid decline and Monday morning he was gone. And uh, just, you know, I saw a post that his brother Joe had put up and the, just the shock and disbelief of, of what happened and how quickly uh, just shows you, you know, how, you know, precious life is and how things can just turn on a dime. I know their family's hurting right now. They haven't released any information just yet about uh, the memorial service, but that'll be coming pretty soon. But yeah, Lenny was a, a class act and a true um, believer in and advocate for Division Three football. Uh, he joined us on our program. We were still sort of fledgling and not too many people had heard of him in the huddle back in the day. I think actually in the first year, 2008, Hobart went to play Mountain Union in the second round of the playoffs, and, and that was part of the coverage. And um, you know, he was certainly instrumental in, in uh, joining us and, and kind of building that relationship that over the last 13, 14 years. So he will definitely be missed. Uh, my heart and condolences go out to his, his family, you know, Joe and everyone else there. It's just, it's got to be really hard, heartbreaking. Um, I, I think that's all I can say. Again, just one of those weekends uh, where you get the highs and lows of the game outside the game itself. Joe Tatula at RPI, his grandfather, uh, actually uh, fell down uh, during the celebration RPI was having and uh, hit his head pretty bad, hoping, hoping that uh, his grandfather is recovering and okay after that. We were trying to actually talk to Joe in the, the post game uh, with CJ Schumacher. And uh, unfortunately, we wanted to let him, you know, deal with his uh, grandfather and his family situation there. All around us, it, it, again, highs and lows all over the place. There's one thing about Lenny, uh, though, and that was the show, the game must always go on. And so we are going to be continuing here on this show on season 15 of In the Huddle in memory of our late friend Lenny Reich. Well, that's never easy, and especially when it's that close to home in this oh. whole situation. <laughs> I mean, it just makes yeah. it even worse for us. Um, love the guy. I really did. Uh, and I, I wish I had been able to say more to him in terms of the thanks I had for him, even yeah. with all the fights and the whole, uh, you know, quarterback situation back when we'll just leave it at that yeah. and everything that was going on and the falling out from that mm -hmm. he still stayed in touch still messaged uh, me and we talked quite a bit yeah. on messenger and whatnot maybe uh, the powers that be at mount union wouldn't like to hear that but guess what he was still loyal enough to make sure that we stayed friends along the way because he knew that yeah. we had good intentions and we knew he had good intentions at the end of the day and that, that's the big thing, I think, ultimately, that drives Division Three. that no matter what the rivalry is, what the battle is in front of you any given day, that you have that moment where you understand that we're all working toward a common goal. We're all trying to make this a better division, make it a better game, and you know we'll fight hard. Uh, an example of that is uh, Jason Omsman is a, an assistant coach at Boston Spa High School. Uh, he was out at the Utica game because number nine of Utica, uh, James Prastio Jr., was taking on number nine of Brockport, 
that's Aiden Thomas, and both of them were uh, are juniors at their respective schools and former teammates at Balsa Spa High School. And even after the battle of a game that you saw uh, on Saturday night, they uh, posed for a photo and are friends still to this day uh, with Jason that we're showing here. Uh, and that's, that's a great moment. Again, epitomizes what we're doing here. It epitomizes Division Three college football for us and why the show has been successful over the years and why we hope to continue it for the foreseeable future at the very least. Uh, I hate to give you the 30,000 foot view uh, moment here uh, after all that, but uh, it was an yeah. interesting week, a very interesting week of college football in week seven. And we're starting to get a picture of what games are gonna matter here in the final four weeks. Go ahead. Yeah, there were a lot of close calls and a lot of games that came down to the final play, the final points, the final you know, gun, however you want to put it. It was really exciting across the board. I mean, certain conferences all had you know, two, three, four games that came down to the final play. It was a pretty crazy weekend. Uh, a lot of comebacks, a lot of teams that looked like they were going to win and then clutch defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, you know, it's just one of those things. It was a, kind of a wacky week seven of, of Division Three football. And, and while things are sort of falling into place, like you said, Frank, there's still enough that's up in the air that we don't really know exactly how things are going to wrap up. So good stuff coming ahead in week eight. But let's look back on what happened with all these crazy games in week seven. We'll talk about that uh, stuff. We'll talk about uh, a little bit about uh, our coverage moving forward here over the next few weeks because I think we have some blanks filled in now about where I'll be for the next few weeks at least, uh, possibly the entire rest of the season. Uh, it's uh, unusual for us to have that level of determination of where I go, but there are some games that are splitting out on the schedule just perfectly to identify them. So we'll tell you a little bit about what's coming up here. Uh, so that we're not hurting feelings down the line uh, as well, because I know a lot of people want the coverage uh, from us. They, it's not that they want to see my face. They want to see their faces on our social media at the end of the day, which can't blame them. Uh, you know, in fact, if I could just walk around like this, I would uh, for them. Uh, but uh, you got we've some got parent that. appreciation shout out tweets, though. I mean, we, you were Thanks, getting some love from the families. They, they definitely appreciated all the you know travel and the miles that you put on and, and interviewing their their sons and grandsons and nephews and all that kind of thing. So, hey, man, just keep doing what you're doing. I wish I was able to tag along on some of these trips, maybe someday. But uh, I'm, I'm kind of stuck here um, for the immediate future, it's looking like. But I'm always here on your, on your video screen to say, hey. Well, you're playing dad, uh, and that's important in and of itself. And so playing dad, you are dad, let's, let's face it. Uh, but uh, thanks to Utica parents for that shout out. Also some of the RPI folks uh, that uh, said some nice things and uh, the great folks over at Johns Hopkins uh, as well. They, we had some great interactions with them throughout the weekend too. We'll talk more about that a little bit later in the show possibly, but we also wanna talk about changes to the playoffs this year that will be relevant playoffs. to you. Playoffs. But first, we come here for crunch time. We're going to give you crunch time for week seven of the 2022 Division Three college football season. <laughs> 
the weirdest looking seven I've ever seen, but we'll just keep rolling with it right here. Let's go to the NESCAC first with a no video game here at this point, and that is Trinity at Middlebury. And Trinity defeated Middlebury 27-21 despite an attempt at a comeback in this game. Uh, and Spencer Fetter had a 21 for 27 day, 198 yards, two passing touchdowns. Cole Kennan from Middlebury, 23 for 41, 386 yards, three passing touchdowns, interception and fumble. But uh, one thing to note is that Middlebury came back from a 21 point deficit in this game only to fall short by six points. Next up, let's go to the ECFC for a few games. We'll usually do this, but they've given us every reason to do it after this set of games. First off, we're going to have Keystone uh, hosting, or excuse me, visiting Anna Maria in this game. And first, uh, in the third quarter, we're going to take you because of the scoring in this game. 6-17 left in the third. Mujahid Muham had a 52-yard touchdown run. That made it 34-19 in favor of Keystone. Could they get their first win ever? Well, Anna Maria would come back. 352 left third quarter. Hayden Braga gets a nine-yard pass from Alex Cohen to make it 34-25, still Keystone's lead. Then with 928 left in the fourth quarter, Hayden Braga again, a 31-yard touchdown pass from uh, Cohen, made it 34-32 after the extra point was kicked in and good. So two-point game, but Keystone's Javier Taza gets a 19-yard touchdown pass from Tom Roach to make it 41-32 Keystone with 213 left. Alex Cohen, though, is not done. 58 seconds left. He gets a, an 18-yard touchdown run. 41-39, still Keystone's lead. You know what it comes down to. And it is an onside kick that is no good for Anna Maria. And Keystone gets their first win in program history. Congratulations to them by the final score of 41-39. Tom Roach, 15 for 25, 243 yards, two passing touchdowns. Also, Alex Cohen on Anna Maria's side, 368 total yards, three passing, two rushing touchdowns. So he had a heck of a day, but in a losing cause in that game. Let's go next to SUNY Maritime at Castleton. And the halftime score was 14-7 Maritime. They'd add to that with 7.06 left in the third quarter. Pat Quinn gets a 13-yard touchdown pass from Steven Stassi. Steven Stassi, he said, to make it 20-7 in favor of SUNY Maritime. We'll go to the fourth quarter. 35 seconds into it, Lucas Morse gets a 7-yard touchdown run for Castleton, so they make it 20-14 there. And then Castleton's Devin Wolner, a 3-yard touchdown run with 8.53 left in the fourth quarter, gives Castleton their first lead in quite some time at least, 21-20. The teams would trade touchdowns to make it 29-26 Castleton after the extra points were kind of uh, different in terms of what they went for. Fourth quarter, 146 left, Pat Quinn, a 63-yard touchdown pass from Steven Stassi. It's 33-29 in favor of Maritime, but a minute later, Jackson Brand gets a 24-yard touchdown pass from Evan Smith. That's 36-33 Castleton. One last chance for SUNY Maritime, and Stassi is intercepted by Kevin McDonough, and that would do it. The final score, Castleton 36, Maritime 33. Jackson Brand with three catches for 42 yards and one touchdown receiving. Steven Stassi for SUNY Maritime, though, 32 for 45, 354 yards, three passing touchdowns and an interception. Another quarterback in a losing cause that has stellar numbers. Unfortunately for them, they don't get the W for that. Gallaudet at Dean. And we'll go to the second quarter here as Quintus Reed gets a 48-yard touchdown run to give Dean a 16-0 lead. 
Uh, the halftime score would be 16-6 in favor of Dean, however. And then in the third quarter, 10-41 left, Quintus Reed again gets a 22-yard pass from Moses Mooney. Dean led 23-6 at this point, but hold everything. Gallaudet coming back with Jalen Johnson getting a 20-yard touchdown pass from Brandon Washington to make it 23-12 in favor of Dean with 3.09 left in the third quarter. About 13 minutes later, Washington gets his own six-yard touchdown run. Now it's 23-18. So they're still down by five, but look what happens here with 3.17 left in the fourth quarter. Punts blocked, and it's Cavargio Smith getting the touchdown for a 26-23 Galliadet lead. Moses Mooney was able to get the ball downfield trying to respond to this, but... Moses Mooney going to take a high snap. He's going to step up in the pocket. Throw to Quintus Reed. Here we go with the pitch. Is back and forth. Far side. Someone's got to catch it. There's Jordan, Jordan Mason. Mason. He's going to have some room. He's going to have one block out in front of him. Going to pitch it. And that's going to be out of bounds. And that would effectively end the game in favor of Gallaudet. 26-23. Dean led, as we showed, 23-6 with 10.41 left in the third quarter. Brandon Washington, 124 total yards, one rushing, one passing touchdown, and one receiving touchdown. He did it all in this game, and uh, congratulations to him on such an effort like that. Finally, in the CCC, Western New England at Salve Regina. I remember picking this game, and we both said, it's tough to win at Salve. Well, they make it true here, as with 12.55 left in the second quarter. Max DeVito gets a 28-yard touchdown pass from Jake Stack to give Salve a 14-0 lead. Three minutes later, though, Western New England responds. Dylan Cole gets a two-yard run of his own for a 14-7 score, still Salve's lead. Just before halftime, Western New England gets a 45-yard Matt Gilbert field goal. So now it's 14-10 at halftime. It's getting close, but Salve pulls away. Look who's back. Joey Morello with a 13-yard touchdown run with 12.04 left third quarter. Made it 21-10. to There was no looking back for Salve, even though the score got a little close at the end. It was Salve winning the game 28-25. Morello, 15 rushes, 76 yards, one rushing touchdown. The all-time rusher, uh, leading rusher in Salve Regina history, I believe is what uh, we had heard on the webcast uh, for him. So congratulations to him. Also, Bryce Karstetter. 19 for 28, 238 yards, one passing touchdown, and an interception. Region 1, a lot of action. Boy, the ECFC starting to wake up suddenly, and I don't know who's going to win the darn thing. Yeah, no kidding. But going back to the last game, Frank, you got to give a shout-out to Joey Moriello. He set the all-time career rushing yards record at, at Salve. I think it's 3,880, give or take. So congratulations to Joey what an accomplishment in his career. I'm sure it felt good, especially with some of the injury struggles. But yeah, Frank, the ECFC was crazy, but it wasn't the only part of Region 1 where we saw some close games. Once again, Kings narrowly gets out with a win. They're quietly, I think, 5-1 and one in second place in the MAC. DelVal kind of cruising right along. Wilkes is lurking back there too. They won 28 to nothing. Merchant Marine and Springfield seem to be on a triple option crash course here, Frank, as the Pride puts up a 69, nice 20 uh, win over there and, and Merchant Marine blanks MIT. Elsewhere, Frank, it was kind of interesting to see that um, Widener was able to squeak past Alvernian in an interesting close call game there. And Hamilton, I think, wins on a safety of all things against Williams. Catholic is still, I think, unbeaten in the new Mac, so you have a, another three-team race brewing there. And once again, second week in a row, Frank, Western Connecticut is knocked off 
a, one of their top tier MASCAC rivals. And so look at the Wolves, Framingham State, not going back to the playoffs. Mass Dartmouth seems to be in control of their own destiny there though. They're gonna have to get by a, a sneaky good Bridgewater State team. Uh, but elsewhere, you got some NESCAC scores and good games with Wesleyan and Bates coming out on top. But lots of crazy back and forth action in Region 1. It was a really fun weekend, particularly up in New England and New York. Well, speaking of New England, New York, let's go New York down into uh, the Baltimore area, Pennsylvania and everything else because Region 2 had a lot of action. Now, the games that I attended, we're going to give uh, generally a little less coverage to here because of all the clips we have up on Twitter and all the uh, stuff we want to get to in this crunch time. So uh, there was a lot to show related to Muhlenberg and Johns Hopkins, but we're going to kind of cut into the chase here a little bit. In the second quarter, 23 seconds left, we're going to show you the touchdown pass from uh, Ryan Stevens to Quinn Revere. This five-yard touchdown pass made the halftime score 27-14 in favor of Johns Hopkins. So it became a 34-14 score, so a 20-point lead by Hopkins. But in the fourth quarter, James Nye gets his third touchdown pass from Joe Repetti. The tight end, uh, great catches all night long, made a 34-27 game with 9.03 left. Well... Look at what happens here because it, it looked like Muhlenberg was going to get the ball back with plenty of time. And so it's amazing here that they ran the fake punt. Emmett Turner getting 34 yards on this play that kept the ball in their hands for a long time. And so Muhlenberg didn't really have a fair opportunity to try to get that go-ahead score. They had one last possession, but they wouldn't be able to convert it. Final score, 34-27 in favor of Johns Hopkins. Ryan Stevens, 219 total yards, two passing, one rushing touchdowns, and an interception. James Nye with those three touchdowns. Uh, that's part of his eight catches, 106 yards. So big win there, and it uh, looks like this Centennial Conference is going to be a two-man race, essentially, between Johns Hopkins and Susquehanna. More on that later. Let's go to the pack, as uh, this was a huge game for the pack when you really get down to it. Carnegie Mellon at Washington and Jefferson. Scoring was limited, really, in this game. Three minutes left, second quarter. Keaton Hall gets a 41-yard touchdown pass from Jacob Hugh to make it 7-0 in favor of WNJ. Carnegie Mellon would get two second-half field goals, so it was 7-6 getting in late into this game. But after the second field goal, with 7.59 left, Logan Young with a 42-yard interception return for a touchdown. The pick six made it 12-7 in favor of uh, Carnegie Mellon. And then Jacob Pugh is intercepted by Vincent Cece. And that would pretty much do it in this game. The final score, Carnegie Mellon 12, Washington and Jefferson 7, with zero offensive touchdowns for Carnegie and Mellon. Carnegie Mellon, excuse me, they win the game. Logan Young scored on that pick six with 7.59 remaining. Willem Boma, uh, 24 rushes, 126 yards for Carnegie Mellon. But again, their offense needs to start scoring here. If they're going to win this conference, it ain't over yet. They still have Case Western Reserve to face down the line here. No video here. TCNJ beats Montclair State 18-15 and another heartbreaker for Montclair. Place kicker Bobby Wortman gets a game-winning 43-yard field goal for TCNJ. Trevor Bopp, 23 for 41, 200 yards, two passing touchdowns and an interception. Montclair at 2-5, 0-3 in the end, Jack. Just a disappointing year across the board there for the Redhawks. Let's go to another game I was at, Utica hosting Brockport. Let's go 10:46. This will be the Nate Palmer show. Just, just go with me on this from uh, Braden Zenilovich. And it's Palmer getting a 25-yard pass from Zenilovich. 
to make it 7-0 in favor of Utica early. But look at this play. We will stick in a quick Brockport highlight. It's Jordan Harris. The nose guard gets uh, basically, or nose tackle, gets a two-yard touchdown off the interception return. Followed the bouncing ball all the way to the end zone pretty much. 7-7 the score there. But Utica just too much in that first half. Nate Palmer, 39-yard touchdown pass from Zelovich to make it 14-7. Then to end this first half, Nate Palmer, again, the 17-yard touchdown pass from Zenilovich, 21-7. The final score as uh, Brockport tried to make it a game in the second half, 35-21 Utica. Nate Palmer, eight catches, 162 yards, and those three receiving touchdowns. Rashad Law from Brockport, 18 rushes, 103 yards in the losing cause. Finally, a little bit more video here for the uh, other game I attended, Hobart at RPI. Let's look at the only scoring in the first half with 108 left in the second quarter, a safety. As it was a bad snap and it looked like a Wildcat type of play, uh, went through the end zone eventually, 2-0. to zero. That's the lead for RPI at that point and at halftime. In the third quarter, 302 left, Alex LaBella gets a 38-yard touchdown pass from David Krusen. It's 6-2 to two in favor of Hobart. And Krusen continued in the fourth quarter, 1251 left. Rainey Daramola gets a 33-yard touchdown pass from Krusen to make it 13-2 in favor of Hobart. Again, 12.51 left. Note that we go past the 8-minute mark still at that score. But DJ Palmer, we get a 29-yard touchdown pass from Jake Kazanowski to make it a 13-8 score in favor of Hobart with 7.44 left. And then late in the game, 24 seconds left, DJ Palmer again. An 8-yard touchdown pass from Kazanowski to make it 16-13 RPI. Here's the last play of the game. Hobart trying to get the uh, ball all the way down the field against a heavy wind. They uh, called it complete. I'm not sure actually it was, but it didn't matter. It was at the seven-yard line, and that would end the game 16-13 in favor of RPI. David Krusen in the losing effort here, 8 for 18, 141 yards, and two passing touchdowns, one interception. Kazanowski, 20 for 33, 168 yards, two passing touchdowns, and an interception. That's just a heartbreaker for David Krusen. I feel like I say that every time I attend a game. I told his uh, parents how proud of him I am as just a football fan for the effort he continues to put in, even in these tough games. No matter what's said about him, he keeps fighting out there. It just unfortunately comes up on the losing end of this uh, tough game again. And I know uh, you have a lot of uh, you know positives in uh, a good view of him as a Hobart guy yourself. Tell us about Region 2. Well, yeah, Region 2, a couple of the surprise games that we saw there, I mean, looking at the, I don't know, I guess it would have been around, what, like 3 or something o'clock. You know, it looked like Carnegie Mellon was going to lose. They get that pick 6, and then they get the other interception, so they, they somehow managed to win a game without an offensive touchdown. Hobart's defense plays outstanding for three and a half quarters. The offense finally comes to life, gives them a – eight-point lead. Looks like they're going to win that game, and then all of a sudden, RPI's offense wakes up. It was helped, though, by that wind, I think, Frank. That that one punt that dropped the ball, I think it was around the Hobart 30-yard line, gave RPI a short field, and they cashed in on that, and then were able to kind of build some momentum. But that's just a, a really tough loss for the Statesmen. Um, a lot of, I don't know, um, th th that team had much higher expectations they, they did not expect to be uh three and three and oh and two in the league at this stage of the season still have some games left they can they can salvage it somewhat but that was a real sort of stomach punch loss uh, for, for hobart on on saturday but hey 
give it to RPI. They made the plays and, and came back and won the game. And I, I noticed Coach I's little uh, thing about home home field and hey, it, it, the the win certainly was there <laughs> for for them. And and um, you know their their defense played outstanding and, and should give them a chance at, at teams like Ithaca and Union down the stretch. Speaking of the Bombers, they struggled early on, Frank. They they were only up nine nothing um, against St. Lawrence, but eventually pulled away. Cortland uh, took care of Hartwick pretty easily. Susquehanna, same thing with Gettysburg. Lots of lopsided games in, in Region 2 overall. I mean, Rochester gets a win over Bus State. That's good for the Yellow Jackets. Westminster, once again, not really challenged there. And then ultimately, the Rowan-William Patterson game was really the only thing that was kind of close in the, in the rest of the region, kind of a local New Jersey rivalry game. Grove City, though, quietly just one game back of, of Carnegie Mellon. They, they have the head-to-head -head loss, but hey, they could be on the path to a 9-1 season, which makes things interesting for Pool C. We'll have to wait and see about that. Ha-ha. Uh, so we, we will indeed have to see where that falls out uh, ultimately. Uh, hey, maybe I'll be visiting Grove City again. Who knows uh, at some point here. But uh, let's go to Region 3. Again, a no-video game, um, Randolph-Macon. Uh, maybe we should feature the women's soccer uh, video that they leave up and uh, instead of the football, because obviously they're trying to tell us something here about their football video in these situations. So uh, maybe that's the new thing we do. We kind of say, hey, their women's soccer team, though, had a great video, and here's uh, how it played out. But here we go with the football, in uh, football information, I should say. Drew Campanelli for Randolph-Macon in this 44-7 win over Bridgewater with 17 for 17. Is that a misprint? 256 yards, three passing touchdowns, one rushing touchdown? That's incredible, and I wonder what their streak record is because Perfect. it'll continue. Yeah, absolutely. Malcolm Anderson, 141 uh, total yards, one rushing touchdown for Bridgewater. In that, former, that battle of former undefeateds, at least one of them remains undefeated, and that's Randolph-Macon. Let's go back to the videotape as East Texas Baptist visited Hardin-Simmons. And ETBU kept this thing pretty close initially as uh, they st were down 10-0, but Caleb O'Brien gets a 10-yard touchdown pass from Cornelius Banks with 6.30 left in the second quarter to make it a 10-7 lead for Hardin-Simmons, and that would be the halftime score. Galen Glindo gets a 57-yard touchdown run to make it 17-7 in favor of Hardin-Simmons. Then watch this as Cornelius Banks is intercepted by Brock Bojnok at the Tigers' 42-yard line, returns it to the three, and then Colton Marshall puts it in from three yards out in the next play, 27-7 in favor of Hardin-Simmons at that point with 12-23 left fourth quarter. That's the final score in favor of Hardin-Simmons. Their offense outgained ETBU. 392 to 94. Galen Glynn, 178 total yards, one rushing touchdown. But again, very close early on. And ETBU did that to both Harden Simmons and to the crew the previous week. So they are trying hard out there. And uh, maybe there's some noise to be made for later on in the season against other teams like who knows. Uh, the ASC, though, should be awake for ETBU in this whole thing. Huntingdon hosted Brevard in the USA South showdown, and it was pretty much all Huntingdon. Halfway through the second quarter, Tyler England gets a 10-yard touchdown pass from Landon Cotney to make it 17-0 at that point in favor of Huntingdon. We'll move forward six minutes later. Sebastian Verge gets a four-yard pass from Cotney to make it 24-0. Huntingdon all the way here at halftime. That was the score in the third quarter, 11.58 left. Kahari McRainall gets a two-yard touchdown run it's 31-0 in favor of Huntingdon, and the final score 
38-14. Huntington wins this game. Landon Cotney, 20 for 29, 292 yards, three passing touchdowns. The Huntington offense outgained Brevard 434-215 in total yardage. And then, how about some overtime? Barry versus Center. Let's just go skip ahead to the fourth quarter. Center's up 17-3 heading into that fourth quarter. Barry's Cameron Kawa gets a two-yard touchdown pass from Blake Hembry. I'm not sure if Gavin Gray's injured or what happened exactly, but it was Hembry all the way in this game. It's 17-10 in favor of Center still there. Four minutes later, though, Josh Rogers gets a six-yard touchdown run to tie things up at 17. And so now, where's this game going? Well, 505 left, Center responds. Will McDaniel gets a 67-yard touchdown run. He gets all the way to that end zone, making it 24-17 in favor of center. Barry fights back. Five seconds left. Brandon Cade, a one-yard touchdown run. This is capped off a 15-play drive. So great job by them to run the clock down and score. 24-24, we're going to overtime. Cameron Kawa in their uh, side, Barry's side of uh, overtime, gets a five-yard touchdown pass from Blake Hembry. It's 31-24 in favor of Barry. Center responds. It'll be a get by Osterman, right side, he's got the first down, he's in the end zone. Touchdown, Nick Osterman, and an extra point will tie the game up, down and one. Nick Osterman, the four-yard touchdown run, 31-30. They decide to go for the extra point in the tie. <sighs> to kick is Taggy. Good snap, good hold, and it is That's blocked. Wow. No good. Barry wins by a final score of 31-30. As the kick is no good and the Vikings storm back from 14 points down and pick up the win here to And it is blocked. Oh my goodness. Barry wins in overtime 31 to 30 wow. based on the blocked extra point. Brandon Cade, 19 rushes, 120 yards, one rushing touchdown. Josh Rogers and Barry also 20 rushes, 114 yards, one rushing touchdown. Wow, uh, that game just heart-stopping, but not the only overtime game we'll be talking about. We'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah. First, recap a little bit more of Region 3. Yeah, similar to Region 2, a lot of blowouts, but there were a couple of close-call games that were interesting as the Hornets of Shenandoah edge Guilford 38-35. We saw McMurray win by a field goal over Austin in the ASC. And then speaking of missed extra points, Frank, Methodist, overcomes NC Wesleyan 34-33, I think on the exact same kind of situation. It wasn't an overtime game, but that extra point, every every point counts in these close calls. It was a great weekend of action in Region 3. Let's go to Regions 4 through 6. We have a full screen of uh, scores here, and so let's talk about some of them at least. Well, we'll talk about all of them, but we'll show you some of them because of uh, some uh, video not available. Who knew that happened even in Regions 4 through 6? Let's start with the Friday night game. It's Oshkosh visited Whitewater in that Friday night game. And uh, we're just going to tell you pretty much about two touchdowns by Whitewater because that was all the real scoring besides that field goal they got to talk to you about. Halfway through the first quarter, an 11-play drive is ended by Preston Strasburg's two-yard touchdown run to make it 7-0 in favor of Whitewater. Fast forward to midway through the third quarter. Hey, there's that Preston Strasburg again, getting a nine-yard touchdown run, making it 17-0. Oshkosh would add a field goal later, but that was it. 17-3. I looked at the box score of this game, and you would think you know, lots of turnovers or something. Not really. I think there were three total turnovers in this game. It was just uh, not being able to complete uh, red zone opportunities, etc. that were occurring in this game. So uh, Whitewater comes away with the win. 
Preston Strasburg gets uh, seven rushes, 29 yards, two rushing touchdowns. Kobe Berghammer, the quarterback for UWO, had 246 total yards and an interception on the evening. No video. Rippin gets a late win against Lake Forest, 16-14. It's their first loss for Lake Forest in 18 straight regular season games. Jarrett Zybert from Rippin, 220 total yards, two passing touchdowns, two interceptions. Let's go back to the videotape as Ohio Wesleyan took on Wabash. And in this game, it was 7-6 Ohio Wesleyan early, but Wabash would respond at 12.59 left in the second quarter. Derek Allen Jr. gets a 24-yard touchdown pass from Liam Thompson. It's 13-7 Wabash. Before halftime, part of Wabash's 21-point second quarter would include also Liam Thompson's four-yard touchdown run with 42 seconds left in the half. It's 27-10 in favor of Wabash at halftime. Third quarter. Heisman Skeens, love the name, 75-yard touchdown pass from Liam Thompson. Now it's a 24-point lead in favor of Wabash, 34-10. And so they were try trying to pull away, and they continue to. Three minutes later, Penn Stoller, a 77-yard touchdown pass from Liam Thompson, 41-10 at that point. And we'll just go to the final score because that was pretty much it, 41-24 in favor of Wabash. The teams combined for 943 total yards. Liam Thompson, 19 for 27, 381 yards, three passing touchdowns on the day. All three you saw there. Trying at Olivet. Fasten your seatbelts. Olivet led at halftime 14-6 in the third quarter, 44 seconds into it. Samuel Kanuji gets a 19-yard touchdown run to make it 21-6 in favor of Olivet. Ryan was down 24-14 late, but mounted a furious comeback. 3.49 left in regulation. Rodney Johnson, a 41-yard touchdown pass from Alex Price, makes it 24-21 in favor of Olivet. Two seconds left. Colton Wampler gets a 32-yard field goal. 24-24. That would do it for regulation. We're going to overtime. Let's take a look at the overtimes in this game. Jalen Broussard gets a 13-yard touchdown pass from Evan Ormsby. It's 31-24 in favor of Olivet, but Trine responds as Connor Arthur gets a 22-yard touchdown pass from Price to tie things up 31 apiece. We're going to a second overtime. Trine starts. Zane Kirby, the hair and the touchdown are all on fleek here. Three-yard touchdown run makes it 37-31. But Alex Price's pass attempt failed for the two-point conversion, which you're required to go for in the second overtime. In Olivet's attempt at overtime, I believe it is pronounced Nyasinu Crowell Jr. He gets a four-yard touchdown run to make it 37-37. So they go for the two-point conversion in the win here, obviously. It is a failed attempt. They try to run it up the gut, and it wouldn't work. 37-37, we go to the third overtime, which is now a battle of two-point conversions. So first up was Olivet. Crowell attempts again the same type of play and it fails. So now trying with their two-point conversion can win the game. Alex Price finds Kale Lawson for the two-point conversion in the end zone. It's good. 39-37. Trine wins. And thanks, Trine, for giving me one more game up on JB uh, this week. Alex Price, 443 total yards, three passing touchdowns, and an interception. Jalen Broussard, six catches, 132 yards, two receiving touchdowns. Actually, I, I, I stand corrected. I, I matched you in Trine because you picked Trine as well, but I almost got a leg up on you in this Wash U Augustana game, and I'll tell you how that almost happened here, folks. 
as Wash U starts scoring early and often here as Colin Goldberg's 55-yard touchdown pass from Matt Rush made it 14-0 in favor of Wash U six minutes into the game. The teams would trade touchdowns both in the first quarter and again in the second quarter. So late in the second quarter, Bobby and Sarah's 25-yard touchdown pass from Cole Hardwash made it 28-21 in favor of Wash U. So back and forth game in the third quarter, 9-11 left, and it's Craig Shelton, a 10-yard pass from uh, Hardwash, made it 28-28. So a tie game. It looked like uh, Augustana was just going to be left in the dust here. They came back, clawed their way back, and tied it there. But five minutes later, Kenneth Hamilton, an 8-yard touchdown run for Wash U, made it 35-28. Then, uh, in case you feel like I'm being repetitive, I'm not here because fourth quarter, 9.50 left. Kenneth Hamilton gets a 7-yard touchdown run to make it 42-28 Wash U. And just for good measure, 6.17 left fourth quarter. Cole Ackman gets a 2-yard touchdown run for Wash U. It's 49-28. Great job bouncing back after getting equalized in this game for a 49-28 final in favor of Washington University. Matt Rush, 16 for 24, 227 yards, three passing touchdowns and an interception. Cole Hardwash from Augustana, 27 for 44, 277 yards, four passing touchdowns, two interceptions. Then, last but not least, we usually like to keep our conference games together uh, for similar conferences, but we wanted to uh, leave this one for last because of the implications. River Falls at Platteville. Early in the second quarter, it was seven apiece. In the second quarter, midway through it, Platteville's Will Lawrence gets a seven-yard touchdown run to give Platteville a 14-7 lead. Third quarter, 5.30 left. Will Lawrence again, but this time a nine-yard touchdown pass from Braden Catcher. Made it 21-7 Platteville at that point. Fourth quarter, River Falls would try to bounce back. Jager Reisman gets a four-yard touchdown pass from Caleb Laha to make it 21-14 in favor of Platteville. River Falls got the ball to the UWP nine-yard line, but after losing a couple of yards, the 13th play of the next drive they, that they would have, fourth and six, would end up being an incompletion. Blaha was looking for Mason Zeeland and uh, could not get that uh, completion, but they still had timeouts left with a minute 12 left, and they were able to force a punt. They got the ball at the 50-yard line. Here's the fourth and 10 play here as Tyler Schweiger uh, was incomplete to Luke Rush in the situation. And so, folks, it was a gallant effort by River Falls to try to come back in this game late. But Platteville wins it 21-14. Will Lawrence, 30 rushes, 88 yards, and one rushing touchdown for Platteville and one receiving touchdown as well. Caleb Laha for River Falls, 255 total yards, one passing touchdown, one rushing touchdown, and an interception. The WEAC is a conference that is just killing each other off and may continue to do so and that might be to the benefit of the rest of the country needing pool c bids we'll see what happens go ahead tell us more about regions four through six well yeah i mean there's so many scores that barely fit onto this slide here but a lot of the usual suspects the, the conference leaders the teams that you expect to hear about in the playoffs are winning the north centrals they set a, a record i think for something like 600 rushing yards <laughs> was on around the nation and you know greenfield their running back is just a bowling ball just knocking down everyone in their path 
Mountain Union wins big. St. John's wins big. Linfield struggled early on, Frank, and it's been interesting to see how the Wildcats, while they're ranked in the top, you know, five or six in certain in polls, they they haven't been blowing out some of their conference foes at least early on. So something to keep an eye on. They've got a big game next week. We'll talk about soon. Lacrosse wins big. Bethel wins big. Wheaton wins big. Wartburg wins big. John Carroll. We maybe could get into this a little bit. For some reason, they're ranked 25th in the D3Football.com top 25. I think Utica and even Endicott, who just appeared as 25th in the coaches poll, are maybe better deserving there. But hey, the streaks are winning games, so you have to give them credit for that. They haven't lost in the OAC yet, which is probably why certain voters like them better than others. Alma... Um, beat Ohio Northern also, but not by as much. They squeak by staying undefeated in the MIAA. Elsewhere, we see um, Hanover winning big in the HCAC. St. Joe's kind of still runs the show there. Uh, Dubuque and Co. came down to a close call, and I think that might have been a safety dance type of game too. One point differential there, it's pretty interesting. Concordia, Wisconsin wins in overtime. Uh, we got, let's see, whew, man. Um, Illinois Wesleyan outlasts North Park 43 to 34. Stout wins fairly stoutly. I'm struggling here for stuff, Frank, I guess. Denison beats Hiram. And then elsewhere, kind of on the West Coast, Kowloo gets thumped by Claremont Mudscripts. Pacific Lutheran wins. They're going to be playing Linfield next week. That's a big game in the Northwest. We'll have some playoff implications potentially, depending on how that goes. Aurora, holy smokes. The BBs put up 72 points over Eureka. And then Carroll outlasts Elmhurst in double OT. And Redlands um, drops a close one to Chapman, 28 to 38. Still a tough still a tough road to hoe there, but the Skyak is still pretty open. We'll see what happens out there in the West Coast. Take a breather because I'm going to tell everybody that was crunch time for week seven of the 2022 Division Three college football season. Okay, uh, JB, let's go to your MVPs here, and uh, we're going to see a quarterback that uh, deserves a lot of uh, credit for uh, how he's managing things as, after Presley Egbers is uh, no longer uh, their QB there. He's uh, picking up where Egbers yeah. left off for sure. That's Drew Campanelli of Randolph-Macon. Looks like the prototypical football uh, guy, you know? He's got the square, uh, quarterback, especially the square jaw, good hair, yep. The whole thing going for him there. Yep. Yeah, handsome kid, but and and there could have been any number of players because there were some great performances across the country. But how often do you see a guy complete every single pass that he throws? That's pretty impressive, especially against an undefeated conference rival. So I had to go with Drew there. Congratulations! Looking like the the Jackets are on their way to a potential undefeated season and ODAC championship. On the flip side, defensively. Lots of guys may have had better stats, but the timing and the result of Logan Young's interception at that point in the WNJ game might have saved Carnegie Mellon's season. That pick six really changed the whole course of the game. It gave the Tartans new life when they couldn't really do anything on offense, so the defense made a play and scored. He, when we look back on the 22 season, particularly in the pack, that might be one of the plays of the year. And then this was kind of a random choice by me, Frank. Having watched the game, you were there in person. And even though technically Anderson's stats didn't match that of the Hobart punter as far as you know net yards and all that, he did drop the ball, I think, three or four times inside the Statesman 20-yard line. And those long fields eventually, I think, got to Hobart. And the play calling got more conservative, especially once they got the lead. And then just 
things just didn't quite pan out. And so the, the special teams play in that game really had a, a big impact on the final result, in my opinion. So that's why I figured, hey, Anderson Burke is your week seven special teams player of the, M the week MVP. I want to go back for a second. Let's uh, take a look here at Logan Young. Does that not strike you as a young Ryan Larson, possibly? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. He's got the little scruffy, you know, scruffy beard, uh, you know, the hair. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. The face and everything. Something just strikes me. We'll put up a side-by-side -side probably uh, when I go do the edits of this and uh, let mm -hmm. folks decide for themselves. But uh, Logan Young, congratulations to him. That was huge, as you said. You can't uh, overstate how huge, huge that play. play was. I mean, they, they bailed out the offense again. Uh, that same the type yep. of scenario from the RPI game where they got it to the one-yard line late and, uh, you know, basically hauled on to win because of that late touchdown uh, that they got there. So that defense of Carnegie Mellon is something else. The offense needs to catch up here. I understand WJ has a good defense yeah. too, but if you're going to be a top 25 caliber team or top 15 caliber team, you have to have an offense to match your defense ultimately. That's the difference between teams yeah. you know that are inside and outside those numbers usually uh speaking of numbers uh only five back now five 67 and 26 versus 62 and 31. i mean all things considered i'll take 66.67 percent okay in terms of uh yeah. my numbers you've actually been it's on a you've been on a good run lately frank because you went 12 and 2 this past week the week before you were 10 and 3 and so yeah and Geez, and we, it's funny, it seems like you have sort of week three, you were 10 and 0, but then you have some clunkers oh, to go week with four, it. You were four and you had four and nine. Oops. So, yeah, you, you run a little hot and cold there, Frank, which is kind of what I've always sort of loved and known about you. Our whole <laughs> time together. <laughs> oh, oh hey, God. We love you, buddy. Thanks. It, it feels it's sort of bad to have a laugh, you know, with our banner reading the way it does. But, you know, Lenny, again, yeah. just memories of him. He would absolutely scorch me on things like that, too. And so, you know, what? I take it well. Oh, yeah, I, I for sure. comes from a good place always. So appreciate that. Still, uh, still tough mm -hmm. to uh, even do this right now with kind of life kicking in the you know what right now uh, with this kind of news. Yeah. Uh, Let's go to the news uh, that are that is going to affect playoffs ultimately. Um, first off, the 600 mile rule—I'll call this good news. I think the 600 mile rule gone. So flights required for 500 miles or over, or over 500 miles. I guess I, you, you have to be okay. 500.0 or greater uh, at this point to get a flight. It didn't affect that many th situations in the small amount of time that it was a rule at 600 versus 500. But mm. still, there, there's a certain certainty of being able to not have to board a bus for 12 hours, basically, on a 600-mile trip that I, I think yeah. comes with this that some schools are relieved to see that might be, let's say, on the more border zones of Division Three. So there's that for us that, that is going to take place starting in this season. On the flip side, okay, we went to a six-region model after being in a four-region model for mm -hmm. how long? And it appears that starting this year... 20-something years. Yeah, well, in the what was supposed to be the 20% rule, that regions were supposed to have 20% of their teams ranked, they're now going to put a cutoff on the maximum at seven teams. So how does that affect things compared to last year? 
four of the six regions ranked eight teams. The other two ranked seven. So they'll be untouched, the ones that did seven. But ironically, let me tell you about teams that may have been affected positively by that eighth team being ranked. Johns Hopkins was able to uh, get a little bit more attention because one of their centennial mates was the eighth ranked team in that region in the final rankings. Similarly, Wheaton was able to have the same situation happen in Region 5. So, who yeah. knows what would have happened if we were only at seven teams last year. So, if you're a Wheaton Johns Hopkins fan, you probably are sitting there saying, hey, we, we don't like this change. And uh, Let's look at Region 2 generally, JB. I, I just want to say, in Region 2, you have the Liberty League, Empire 8, and Jack, Centennial Conference, PAC. You have five pool A's that probably should be ranked, and that means only two non or two non winners can be ranked if you rank all of your pool A teams. That's not the way this is supposed to work. In the old days, it was maximum seven pool A's in any one of the four regions, and they were ranking ten teams deep, so you would at least have three teams not, you know, already pool A winners in there. This just smells of laziness, and it's inappropriate, I believe, for them to do this in football. Again, another rule that might be okay for other sports, but they're really losing, I think, the forest for the trees in terms of how the football system is supposed to work. What are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, I was looking, and we, I, I'm always kind of curious to see what happens with the undefeated teams. And so we're really at 20 21 if you include Trinity of Connecticut, my Hartford State Bantams. Good job, guys, and good job, Spencer Fetter, for winning that game up in Vermont. But there's only going to be two undefeated teams in Region 1, most likely. Right now, it's Del Val and Endicott. They seem to control their destiny. I'm Them losing would be considered a pretty significant upset in that right now. So there's five spaces there, theoretically, but typically... No one from Region 1 gets selected for Pool C, so maybe that's neither here nor there. Let's go to Region 3. Trinity and Randolph-Macon are the last standing undefeated teams. We know Huntington's in the lead in the USA South. And then, um, you know, the ASC is probably going to be Mary Harden-Baylor. So there will be a little spot, you know, I guess, you know, Harden-Simmons squeaks in there at the bottom maybe in, in five or so a lot of people think that they might be one of the first teams considered. When you look out in Region 5, there's only going to be potentially three teams there because Wartburg, North Central, North Central and Washington are playing this weekend, so that's going to make one of them with a loss. And then Ripon won. I think they still have to play Chicago and a couple other teams, so maybe they could, they could go down. And then Region 6, we're at the point where there's still only two undefeated teams, Linfield and Carlton. Everyone seems to think Carlton's going to lose down the road, so there's going to only be one out there in Region 6, which is going to be really interesting because you're going to have the Whitewaters, you're going to have all the my, me, WEAC schools. But Region 2, Frank, still has six undefeated teams in it. And, you know, Hopkins and Susquehanna are going to play. That will knock one out. Utica and Cortica are going to play. That's going to knock one out. Cortica and Ithaca are going to play. That's going to knock one out. Ithaca is going to play. They still have to play Union. They still have to play RPI. Hold, hold on, Frankie. hold on. You keep calling them Cortica. It's Cortland. We don't want to uh, implicate uh, the Cortica jug just because it's Cortland. Yeah, Ithaca will start calling in yeah. and there'll be all hell breaking loose here. But as you said, Cortland, Utica, Cortland, Ithaca still to be played. 
So that that could be very Carnegie interesting. Carnegie Mellon it has to play yep. case. So I mean, there's that there's going to be a logjam in Region Two, and a team like Susquehanna, let's say if they finish nine and one, or a team like Utica if they finish nine and one, or maybe even let's say Ithaca finishes nine and one, and they don't win the Liberty League due to some kind of, you know, upset or something. Yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting tussle here to see how you rank these teams with only seven teams ranked in each region. I think this is the wrong year for this to happen for football. Of all years for it to happen, this probably was the year you needed eight to nine deep in certain regions to be able to fairly you know, judge strength of schedule based on teams who are ranked in your games against them. Platteville. Yeah. I mean, Platteville may not even make it onto the board for Region 6, and they have some results that where they've won, I think, a couple of games, and it's crazy. Yep, this will be a challenge, no doubt. And I'm curious to see. Now we have the alphabetical list will be our first list coming up in a couple of weeks instead of a ranked list. That'll tell us very little, although we'll see who is actually in the list, I guess. Uh, going seven deep and then the last two will be obviously the regional rankings that matter for everybody to want to see and begin to judge who's going to be the kind of pole position pool C teams or at least the ones to be considered on the board remember at any given time during pool C discussion six teams are under consideration each pool C top level team remaining on the list of rank originally ranked uh, teams in each region the top pool C team in all six regions go up against each other and the criteria are compared in that situation. So a lot to uh, talk about when we get further along, but these changes are very interesting and something we wanted to take note of based on the September championships committee meeting, the minutes just being released recently. And uh, that's the information that we got. I know we got a, a Twitter question as well from somebody on this, but we were planning on talking about this anyway at that point. Coffee cakes. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so let's talk about what the uh, travels of me look like going forward. Uh, and I, I feel bad that we're not going to get to New England. It doesn't look like nearly as much as I'd like to. Yeah, uh, you, you go, go ahead, tell the schools. But, uh, you know, I did get out there a couple of times uh, this season, WPI in Springfield. So at least we did have some representation, got to see Endicott play. But we got some major games that need our attention uh, and national attention. And there's no better way to give them national attention, I feel, than to show up and give, you know, the firsthand accounts that we try to do. This weekend, yeah. there's no other place to be but Utica again. Uh, Cortland Utica is going to be a dogfight at Gaetano. Uh, that's in Utica. So I, I think there's no choice but to go to Utica for this game. Uh, looking around us, I don't see any other games with that level of implication, ultimately, especially undefeated versus undefeated in a de facto championship game for a conference, even though there's still games to be played. It would take a lot to knock off the loser, uh, or I'm sorry, the winner of this game and make them into a loser for the conference, ultimately. The week after, uh, week nine, uh, we're looking at Susquehanna hosting Johns Hopkins, another possible undefeated versus undefeated. Now, they still have one game to play, and if they lose either one of them that game, maybe we reconsider that. But that game seems to be the game of games in Week 9, especially for reachable uh, for me uh, at that point in time. Week 10, we might be looking at Ithaca versus Union, although that could change as well. 
uh, or we could be doing the Blitzer show that we do here. We'll keep you posted. That's a little ways off. Week 11, I'll see you at Yankee Stadium, folks. I mean, you can't, for a guy that's got New York City roots in the last 20 years, I still own a place down there, for goodness sake. To have Cortica played in my proverbial backyard 80 blocks uh, higher, or 90 blocks higher, uh, you know, it's, it's you got to do it. I've never been to Cortica. I've never been on the field at Yankee Stadium. Let's kill two birds with one stone, folks, with that. And for a quality matchup between Cortland and Ithaca down there. So that pretty much accounts for the season. There are not many Friday night games of note, but Friday night of the weekend of Cortica, we might get to an NJAC game. There are a couple of Friday night games being played in week 11, believe it or not. So we are looking ahead. If you don't think we think about this in advance and put some effort into determining where I should go, we do. We are looking that far out right now to figure this out. And uh, I, I guess my goal... Oh, hold on. You're, now, now you're doing a Frank. You're muted right now. So Okay. So I just want I just want to put the call out though. I mean, we, we already sort of know what the what's on the menu up at Utica, but for some of these other locations, I want, you know, Susquehanna, other fans, you gotta tell this guy where the best food is in Selens Grove. You know, you you know Manhattan, New York City well enough. I think I still have some of my t shirts from my last trip, you know, in, in the guest bedroom. But um you know, everyone help Frank find good places to eat, hang out. What's the pregame tailgate going on thing? You've been you've been told. Let's let's hear what D three Nation has to say for Mayor Rossi there. So the goal ultimately, I think, is twenty two and twenty two. That I, I want to get to twenty two games in twenty twenty two. We're up to thirteen right now. Uh, basically, you know, we could see seventeen ish by the end of the regular season, maybe eighteen. And if that is the case, there might be a possibility for that to happen still in some way, shape, or form with the five weeks of the playoffs. We'll see what we end up doing. Stag Either way, you're going to be there for that, right? Yeah, I, I think so. But uh, we'll get to 20, I think, at the very least, again, which was last year's uh, number, which really going into the season, we didn't have any plans to go to this many games. But you know what? Yeah, was I tired at the end of this weekend? Yes. Was I emotional after all the news that came in this weekend on top of it? Yes. But, I mean, I ate well. Yeah, you know it's funny too. Actually, um, a, a friend of ours. So our my my band played in Daytona the other weekend, and she came up to me and was like, "Hey, did I see that you were at, at Westminster College? I went to school there. What were you guys doing there? It's out in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania." And I'm like, "Well, we do a Division three college football show, and I physically wasn't there, but my friend and co-host of the show, Frank, was, and yeah, we did a live." pre-game and actual game coverage of a Titans game. She's like, no way, that's cool. So, hey, that's what we do. People notice, even the random folks out in Daytona Beach, man. All in a day's work, right? It's something along those lines. But listen, folks, uh, we were going to have some uh, good stuff coming at the end of this week. We had a lot of good predictions uh, are going to be required of us. Uh, some big games coming up on Saturday for sure, including that Cortland-Utica game, the Cortica game, uh, I guess people call it because of Cortland in Utica. And I. Yep. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll see uh, who we pick for that game. Uh, and uh, thank you again for everybody that are uh, the folks sharing, uh, retweeting, and you know liking the interviews we do post game. 
We used to try to sort of put them into these shows. Now we've just spun them off into their own Twitterverse, basically. And uh, your support of those tells us that we're doing something right with those once we started doing that last year. And we'll continue to do so. It makes life a little bit easier for us to be able to sort of push those off to Twitter the way that we're doing them. So thanks again for all that. Well, we'll see you Friday uh, for our live show, Friday morning. You'll want to join us. And uh, by the way, folks, F cancer. Because, again, we yeah, lost a friend, seriously. a good one, and uh, we don't want to lose anybody else to this horrid, horrid disease, yeah. especially anybody under the age of 50. It's just it's spellbinding that this happens. I mean, in this day and age, even with all the medical advances we've got, there's nothing we can do in a situation like this, and it's a helpless, helpless feeling. Rest in peace, our friend. We miss you.